Our text, of course, is Ezra chapter 10. In the last chapter of this book, and next week will be our last message in the book. I'm not surprised I'm not hearing cheering for that, but we'll be in the book of Colossians soon. Um, by the way, I have to make this disclaimer that none of my sermons are all comprehensive. I have no way I've covered everything possible in this book. Go back and read it. I pray that God has used it to kind of whip your appetite to go back and look at the story of Israel and what happened. Because when the New Testament writers start writing, a lot of things they talk about, they're taking for granted that their, their readers or the listeners know that history. It would be no different than me writing you a letter. I wouldn't say the year that President Trump was president or whatever because that's common knowledge. We would know that. But a hundred years from now, they wouldn't know who the president was. You ever see jaywalking? He goes, who's the president? I don't know. So it's good to understand the historical context in which these uh, events are taking place. And, of course, the title is Follow the Leader. Have you ever played Follow the Leader when you were a kid? Were you always the leader? You guys always have to be in charge. No, do what, I, do what I'm doing. There was a movie came out called Gettysburg, and that's exactly what the movie was about, the Battle of Gettysburg. And generally, in, um, Long, General Longstreet, were having this conversation as they go into battle. And he's basically, generally, he's telling General Longstreet, look, you, I've lost too many good men in this war. I don't want you to put yourself in harm's way. In other words, Hang back. Don't go to the front line. And General Longstreet's answer was this. You cannot lead from behind. And that's very true. A leader has to be out there showing his or himself or herself willing to do what they're talking about. And you see that in Ezra. But before we get started, let's take some time to reflect back about we're at in Ezra as we're about to wrap this up in the book next week. And that's always an important thing to do in your personal Bible study is to take a step back and look at everything in context. Because you can get hung up on a particular passage or a verse. But you need to step back and look at the whole big picture. Now, back in chapter 7, Ezra, Ezra had finally showed up on the scene. It had been 59 years since the first remnant had completed the temple. And they did so under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua. But during that 59-year period, not much had happened. Yes, they had finished the temple, but the people had not grown in their walk with the Lord. Instead, they had become satisfied with ceremony and temple worship, the ritual of temple worship. In other words, they have grown complacent because they were satisfied with simply going to church. And they did religious things because that was a thing to do. They didn't do it from the heart and their devotion to God. And this is why God sent Ezra to them. And by God's grace, Ezra had devoted his life to a personal threefold mission. And you read that in verse 10 of chapter 7. It says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to take practice it, and to teach it his statutes and ordinance of Israel. So he was to study it, he was to practice it, and he was to teach it. And that's exactly what he did when he brought that second remnant back to Jerusalem from Babylon. In teaching God's word, the people began to see their sin. They didn't point fingers at each other, but began to see themselves as chief sinner. They're the ones 
are guilty of this. And that began a period of public confession, started with the leadership, and they confessed their sin before Ezra. It drove him to his knees. And in last week, we looked at this, and chapter 9 gives us one of the most powerful prayers of corporate confession that leads us to our passage today. Because what happens now is what immediately follows Ezra's prayer. They had not been accomplishing the mission. Why is that? Because they had unconfessed, unrepentant sin in their midst. It was a barrier to getting the work done. Their mission was not simply to build the temple back. Their mission was to build the temple, but also build Jerusalem. Now, the temple has been done, but Jerusalem was still in ruins, so they hadn't finished the mission. And they were to build Jerusalem not because God needed a city in which to dwell, but it was to stand as a witness and a testimony to the nations of God's grace, power, and mercy. That was their mission. What is our mission as a church? You've probably heard me say this repeatedly over the last three weeks. What is our mission? Our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Everywhere we go and in everything we do, we are to make disciples, baptize them, and then send them out to make more disciples. And they bring them in. We teach and we baptize. And you send them out. What's keeping us from accomplishing our mission? What keeps us from accomplishing anything that God wants us to accomplish, really? What is the barrier stopping us? It's our sin. Sin is a barrier between us and God. Now, Jesus Christ paid the penalty of our sin, but we have unconfessed, unrepentant sin in our lives that's going to cause disruption with our fellowship with God. As we go to God and ask God for direction, he's going to say, Tim, first thing we need to do is deal with this sin over here in your life. And, you know, all of us have sin. All of us fall short of the glory of God. But we see happening today, they didn't stay there, did they? They got ready to do the work. To cast that barrier aside and get to work accomplishing their mission. They had the right assembly. They had the right answer. They had the right agreement and the right attitude. At some point after you confess and repent of sin, you have to pick yourself up and you have to finish the mission. But how will you know when to do that? Well, let's see what the remnant did. First, they had the right assembly, and you see that in verse 1. Look at the scene that's going on. And before I go any further, let's look at that scene. In Ezra chapter 10, verse 1, give me just a moment, get a little ahead of myself. There you go. It says, now what? Now, while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children, gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept bitterly. You see what's going on? He's praying this, and these people are gathering around him, and they're weeping. That that word bitterly, it's not just a who, it's a deep, wailing-type cry. They're they're anguished within. We read in verse 2, Shekaniah, the son of Jehel, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Verse 3, 
Now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this man is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests, the Levites, and all Israel take oath that they would do according to this proposal. So they took an oath. So you have all these people gathering around Ezra. And when Ezra was confessing, now first of all, did Ezra have anything to confess about? He hadn't broken the law. He hadn't married a pagan wife. However, as part of being their leader, their spiritual leader, he took that sin on like himself and he confessed it and prayed it before God as if it was his own. Ezra 9, 5 says he fell on his knees with his arms outstretched before God. And what happened, the people responded by gathering around him. Hebrews 10, 25 tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. These people did not forsake that assembly, but came with a great congregation. Look what it says in the text. Everybody came, men, women, and children. And they came together. And when they came together, something very wonderful happened. They got the sense of God's holiness. As this leader, this spiritual leader, took on that sin and started weeping before God, they saw that and their hearts broke too and they fell down and they wept bitterly and they were crying out. They sensed the sense of God's holiness. You see this happen in Isaiah chapter 6. It says, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple and smoke and the threshold shook. What's interesting in that passage, go back and read that later this week. When God shows up, he doesn't say one word to Isaiah. Nothing is said. But when Isaiah sees God, he's in the presence of the holy God. He falls down. He confesses, I'm an unclean man with unclean flips. And I'm surrounded with unclean people. See, when we get face to face with God... No one needs to tell you who you are in relationship to God because he's a perfect, holy God. And that's what they felt. And when we come together as God's people, we sense that holiness. You ever been in a worship service that you just feel the presence of God? You can just feel his holiness. You can feel him moving. And the leaders realize and the people realize how far they have fallen Notice when they when they got down and they were weeping, they didn't try to justify their sin. They didn't attempt to deflect it to other people. They saw their own sin and they were broken because of it. They were broken and they joined Ezra in weeping bitterly. Let me just ask you a question. This speaks to me this morning as well. When's the last time we ever fell on our knees and cried not only for our own sin, but the sin of our country? The state of our... When's the last time that we shed a tear for our own nation? We're supposed to love people. Let me just ask a very basic question. Do you believe Jesus Christ is the only way? Yes, right? Do you believe people who die without relationship with Jesus Christ are headed to hell? Yes. Are we have to love people as Christ loves them? Yes. So if that's true, we should be down before God every day. On behalf of the lost, especially now with the riots and people being killed and burning of the cities. We should be crying out, God, we need that. There's people need to hear 
the gospel, need people to respond to before it's too late. That should drive us. We should, we should weep and cry out to God. This is what really coming. You don't come to church. You're a gathering as the church. This is where we come when we get encouraged. We'll get challenged. People come alongside of us and encourage us and pray with us. This is where we get our mission. This is where God speaks to His people. This place is called a sanctuary. You know why? Because everything out in the world that divides us, social economic standing, education, race, ethnicity, all that fades away in the shadow of the cross. This is a place where you're safe just to be yourself. It's where we come together as God's people. We meet Him. And when... We get before God. No one has to tell us a thing about who we are in relation to Him. It's tragic that today we have so many different ideas of what church is supposed to be like. But if you really stop and look at all these different ideas, they only deal with one thing, and that's an issue of style. Is it contemporary or is it traditional? Is it formal or is it casual? Is it rivalistic or liturgical? Is it the old-time religion or is it something fresh, exciting, and new? Let me just put it to you this way. Listen very carefully. The way I would answer that question is this. It does not matter what the color of the carpet is if the floor underneath it is rotten. Catch what I just said? Because the issue is always one of the heart. Don't people say, well, you should wear a suit. I don't have... It doesn't matter. Yes, I want you to dress modestly. Don't come in here, you know, we should be dressed modestly. But God's concerned about the heart. You know what Jesus said? You, you clean up the outside of the cup, but inside the cup is dirty as can be. See, God doesn't change from the outward in. God changes from the inward out. You change someone's heart, you got them. See, the law can never do that. The law kept telling us, we fail, we fail, we fail, we fail, we fail. Drives us to Jesus who gives us a new nature. The Bible tells us when we become a Christian, behold, all things have passed away. Everything becomes new. We're a new creation in Christ. Forsaking the summing of ourselves together robs us of tasting and seeing and partaking of God's holiness and worship. When we begin to catch a glimpse of His holiness, we have no choice but to see our sin. And when we see our own sin in the light of God's holiness, we'll be broken. And we'll be broken just like the remnant was. Until God breaks His people, and when we let God break us, that's when real change starts to happen. Go back and study the first and second great awakening. Any type of spiritual awakening or revival has broken out. Starts with God's people. So you know what? I'm tired of this. Here I am. I'm broken, God. Whatever you want, you got it. That's when you see great movements of God. So they had the right assembly. Look, they had the right answer. They're broken and they're weeping. And Shekinah speaks out on behalf of the people. Look how he confesses. He confesses the most blatant, obvious, widespread sin of the remnant that men have 
been marrying the foreign women. And God forbid them to do that, not because of different nationalities, but because they were of a different religion and God didn't want them pulling them away from himself. God says, don't do this because they'll pull you away. They'll lead you away from me. But he confesses. Hey, look, he doesn't whitewash it, though, does he? He doesn't skip around it. He just puts it out there. You know what our sin is? You know what well, I think my opinion you may disagree with? You know what the sin of the American church is? I would sum it up in this statement. Apathy. Just don't care. Oh, we say we care, but do we really care? Do I really care about people? Every time God has me preach on this or study this, you know what happens to me? I end up going to Walmart the next day. This afternoon, I probably end up in Walmart. And God's going to say, you know, you're supposed to love people like I do. Now you're going to get the, <laughs> some people just doing their thing and just to see if, you know, and God's testing me. He's trying my patience. Or I'm driving down 287 coming cuts me off. You know, it, that's where the rubber really hits the road. I mean, we can sit in here all day and cheer and clap and say amen, but until we go out there and do what God's told us to do, it doesn't mean much of anything. It's kind of like a football team practicing play after play, day after day after day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And they're getting all right up about them until they go out there and face an opposing team to pull off what they've been practicing. What difference does it really make? You can practice all day long, but are you going to put it into, into, into your daily lives? Now, we have the same instruction about being careful who we bound ourselves with. Second Corinthians 6.14, do not be equally yoked, unequally yoked with unbelievers. He's warning against, in this case, marrying an unbeliever. Because if you marry, knowing, knowingly marry an unbeliever, sometimes an unbeliever can lead you down another path. And I'll, I want to be very clear about this. You, you can date, but you need to find out what that person believes. Because when you start having kids, and you want to start talking about how you're going to teach those kids, raise those kids, those issues are going to be huge. What morale are we going to teach our kids? How, what school are we going to send them to? Are we going to make church a, a priority of our lives? Are we going to teach them? Because I will say this for everybody who's listening to me this morning. Ultimately, you can sit there, you can blame the school, blame the church. Who are we going to blame? But at the end, you're responsible for your kids. God's going to hold you accountable for teaching them his ways. Now, what they become a, a particular age, they're on their own. It still hurts, though. But they're on their own. Our responsibility is to teach them and raise them in the ways of God. That's our responsibility. It's not the youth minister. It's not the pastor. It's not the deacons. not the Sunday school directors, VBS. As parents, that is our job. And by the way, one thing I learned about being a dad, it never stops. You never get across the goal line and spike the ball. Woohoo, I'm done. No, it, it keeps, keeps on and on and on. I could be 90 years old. My kids be coming to me. Dad, it never stops. <laughs> I like you coming by, by the way, so don't read into that. There was a Christian comedian called Jeff Allen. He was talking about this. He said, you know, nowhere in the Bible does it, <laughs> does it talk about the age when Satan rebelled against God. Because if it was up to me, I would say he'd probably be 16 years old when he rebelled against God. <laughs> And he said, you know, children are God's way of looking at us and saying, I'm going to let you procreate somebody in your image and let them deny your existence and see how you like it. 
God did not intend us to witness to the world by entering into marital relations with the world because he knows that pagan husbands will lead to pagan households. Pagan wives will lead to pagan households. Don't give them that foot in. It's like we talk about in Sunday school. It's just that gradual. Well, this is not so bad. It's a gradual thing. And I look at my life. I ended up with some bad stuff in my life. How did I get there? I didn't wake up one day, hey, let's do this. It's a slow fade, as Casting Crowns would say in their song. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's not overnight. It's that slow fade. Now, he stood as a representative of the people. Look what he says. He doesn't gloss over. He doesn't blame it on the past. He says it flat out. They have trespassed. I think the King James renders that way. Or in the New American Standard, I'm reading out of, it says unfaithful. And that word in Hebrew translated unfaithful or trespass means to be untrue. To deceitfully and willfully break faith. So here's the idea that this is not something that happened by accident. You knew better and you still did it. It wasn't an accident. They knew the law and they knew the consequences. They purposely chose to put all that behind them when they saw those pretty young foreign ladies going, Hey, guys. Can't believe I just did that, do you? And I just went over the internet for everybody to see that. But how many times do we do the same thing? We know better. We, we know we shouldn't do it. We know it's a sin to gossip and to bite back and to have bitterness and not to forgive. We know it's a sin to tear people down instead of building them up. We know all that, but it seems so appealing. So we do it. But then the real crime begins when we do it and we hold on to it, we justify it, we rationalize it, we minimize it. That is the wrong answer. The right answer is what Shekinah said. That been unfaithful. That's where confession starts. We just say, you know what, I'm not even going to try to hide this. God, you know everything. Here it is. I give it to you. And notice as he's confessing this, he still points to the the one who will bring reconciliation, restoration. And that's God. Then they had the right agreement. And it's interesting that he's the one who speaks on behalf. Look what it says about him. He was a son of Jehel from the family of Elam. Now, Elam, that family line came, we went back in chapter 2, they were part of the first remnant. So they had been there for a while. Now, we know from the list that later in chapter 10, they have a, by the way, chapter 10, read ahead, that's a list of everyone who broke the law. Now, how would you like a list of what you did, rid thousands and thousands of ladies by a bunch of people they even know? So we know by that that his daddy married a pagan wife. Now, here's something really interesting. We don't know if Shekinah's mother was one of those pagan women or not. We just don't know. Perhaps it was. But here's my point. When he confessed this sin, he's calling out his father. And they're going to put these wives and children away. So no matter how you look at it, his home life, what he knew was going to be disrupted in a bad way. Now, I have to point out this passage is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's telling us something that happened in the history books. God hates divorce. He doesn't hate divorced people. He hates divorce because the pain that it causes. Because you join together as one, you join not only physically but emotionally and spiritually as well. 
part of you is gone. And then when that happens and you're falling apart, you, you ever take two pieces of paper and you glue them together and you try to pull them apart? You don't get all the paper back, do you? That's the same thing that happens when that marriage covenant is broken. It hurts. God hates it because of the pain that it causes. And also, marriage is also a reflection of Jesus and his relation to the church. So we can't take this past and say, see, you can just, no. This is something happened in a context. It's descriptive telling us what happened. In other words, the sin had consequences, all right? That's the point we cannot miss here. Sin has consequences. They had painted themselves into a corner, if you will, and this is the only way they could deal with it. Put it this way. God will forgive your sin, right? But he will not always take away the temporal consequences of that sin. For example, if you decide to go rob a bank, you're probably going to go to jail. Will God forgive you of that sin? Yes, if you're true and you confess and repent, God will forgive that sin. But it doesn't mean he'll take those consequences away. There are consequences that we must think about and wear our minds out. I mean, if, if you do certain behaviors, there's consequences to pay. Uh, Pastor Ray Val at Sunset uh, when I was youth minister there, for years he was he he would say this to anybody. He was a recovering alcoholic, did a lot of drugs in his younger years, and I remember him telling me something. He said, "I'm going to die soon because of everything I did to my body, because I'm okay with that. That's, God has forgiven me of all that. He's made me a new creation, but that is a consequence of what I did to my body when I was a younger man." And he would tell the young people, "Think about what you are doing." Tell of all that, but be careful what you do because that will come back and sometimes haunt you. Doesn't mean God doesn't forgive it, but a lot of times he won't take that back. And just as a side note, we get wrapped up so many times. God does heal people, does he not? He's still in the healing bed. And we see that happening and people praise God. But here's the most heart-wrenching question. If God doesn't heal me, will I still praise him anyway? Regardless of what he does. That's where we need to be. God's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's still in the healing business. We see that happen. But no matter what happens, am I still going to praise God? We see these people confessing. Basically telling God whatever radical changes need to happen. Let them happen. They were not bargaining or begging from God. Rather, they were agreeing with God. This is sin. We confess. We repent. And now we're ready to take whatever steps we need to do to get out of our lives. I don't care what radical change needs to happen. And then lastly, you see the right attitude in verses 4 and 5. This whole thing started with a small group of leadership that went to Ezra and confessed the sin. And when they brought it to his attention, he didn't whip the people. He didn't set up a task force to clean up the people. He didn't meet with the people. What did he do? He prayed for the people. Ezra had been feeding them and talking about and teaching the word, the word of God so much that they saw their own sin for themselves. And Ezra prayed a prayer of confession and weeping, cast himself down before the house of God, and they followed the leader. What a picture of leadership. 
He could have led them like a dictator. You people are going to straighten up. You're going to shape up and fly right. We're going to get Jerusalem built. No excuses. Get to work. How about a cheerleader? Well, that's okay, man. We got a plan. We're going to build a city. You can do it. I know you can. The first thing is get someone. The first person who builds something gets a free camel ride. Let's get to it. But neither of those responses he did. He, like a true leader, a pastor, he got down his knees and he prayed. He knew where real change comes from, and that comes from God. Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. You know, the watchmen were the people on the walls guarding the city. Unless God's watching the city, those guards are useless. We can build everything we want, but unless God's in the middle of it, it's not going to last. It's true about ministry and churches. Well, sure, we can go about making programs and ministries, but unless God's in the middle of it, it's not going to last. Oh, yeah, it may last a little bit, you know, but it won't stand the test of time. He had the right attitude and leadership. He looked upward. And the people in response saw that. And they looked upward. I say this with all the love in my heart. Don't follow me. Follow Christ. Follow the leader. Since as you see me follow Christ, you come alongside of me. Let's follow Christ together. Pastor is a very important role in the local church. But at the end of the day, I'm a human being just like you. I mess up. I sin. I think the problem we have in a lot of our churches, we follow the people rather than following God. And they took this oath. And basically they're telling Ezra that we know that God's holding you uniquely responsible for us. And because of this, we promise you today that we're going to completely follow your direction and leadership. We want you to take heart in the fact that we are here to support you and do the work that you call us to do because we recognize that you're under God's authority. And they made up, they ended it by making a public oath, and they swore. But you see what Ezra did? He didn't stand there and say, yes, right, you need to get yourself. Oh, he was right in there with them. Praying and confessing and weeping. That's a perfect picture of what godly leadership is really all about. What does Jesus tell us? Or Scripture tells us? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That's what's supposed to bind us together. Experiencing life. All the ups and downs. At times rejoicing before the Lord. At other times weeping before the Lord. We know what the work that God has for us here. We know what our mission is. We're not to sit here as a spot in the road on 455, not affecting the area around us. Our mission is to reach Forestburg with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our mission is to reach Montague County with the gospel. Our mission is to reach the state of Texas with the gospel. 
Our mission is to reach the United States of America with the gospel. And our mission is just to reach the world with the gospel. Now, bear with me. Let's think about this backwards just for a moment. And what I mean by that is an illustration by Tony Evans. It goes like this. If you want a better world made up of better countries that are made up of better states. So you have a better world made up of better nations, made up of better states. That requires those states to be made up of better counties. So if you want a better world made up of better nations that are made up of better states, then you have to have better counties. Well, that requires better cities. So if you want a better world made up of better nations, made up of better states, made up of better counties, made up of better cities, that requires better communities. So here we are. We want a better world made up of better nations, made up of better states that are made up of better counties that are made up by better cities that are made up by better communities. But to have better communities, you got to have better churches. See where I'm going? So if you want a better world, it's reaching the gospel of Christ, made up of better nations. That's made up of better states. That's made up of better counties. They are made up of better cities. They are made up of better communities, which are made up of better churches. And how do you get churches on fire and reaching the gospel? It comes back to you and me. See how we went backwards? Well, Tim, the world is so big. Where do we start? Myself. That's where it all begins. Don't let the forest confuse your vision of the tree. Don't, don't lose that. Start with yourself. Because at the end of the day, the only person you really have any control over is yourself. Start there. And as you begin to start there, and as a church, as we come together, we start to see it. We'll start seeing things in our community start to change. We will see the gospel go forth, and we'll see relationships healed. All those things. It's like what Second Chronicles 7.14 says. You know this passage. You've heard it time and time again. If my people, God says, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. It's not unbelievers. This is you and I. We are called by his name. Then he says, I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and will heal their land. We have the right assembly. If we have the right answer, the right agreement, and the right attitude. When we get those four things right, we'll be ready. But you know what? I already see some of those things start to happen here at Forestburg. I see it. A little guilt is here and here and here. I see God moving. Even in the midst of this packet pack of pandemic, God is still moving. And I pray that God will continue to give you and I an overwhelming sense of his holiness. That we will continue to humble ourselves and pray and seek his face. Not only today, but every day. That we will turn from our wicked ways. And turn to him. That's a daily exercise. Then we'll see hope. We will see hope for Forestburg. We will see hope for our county. Montague. We will see hope for Texas. We will see hope for our country. 
and we'll see hope for our world. But all this comes down to us as individual believers. It's important to be educated who you vote for, for president, for Congress. But our only real, solid, everlasting, unwavering hope is only on one person and one person alone. And he doesn't sit in the White House. He sits on the throne of heaven next to the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ. That's the only hope that we have. Everything we do has to be undergirded in that conviction. How is God moving you today? What's he calling you to do? That, that voice going off your head? You can't do that. You don't know how to do it. You know what? You're right. I'm going to say it again. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. Look at some of the people in Scripture. The world will look at and go, really, that guy? I'm going to end with this illustration that Brother Roger shared with us about Samuel. God says, I want you to go to the house of Jesse. I'm going to raise up a king from that household. So he goes in there, and here comes these big old stocky young men. I mean, just rugged guys. And Samuel's thinking, this must be the guy. He looks like a king. Man, he's tough. Five or six of them go by, and God say, no, that's not him. That's not him. That's not him. This little rugged, little peeny-looking teenager comes in from off the field, and that's David. You know what God says? Sam, you're looking out the outside. I don't look on the outside. I don't judge a man from the outside. I look at his heart. If you have a willing heart and you're obedient, God will use you to do things you can't even possibly imagine. You may not even know about on this side of heaven. But you imagine standing there one day with the Lord. He says, look around you for great is your reward. God is wanting and desiring to use each and every one of us to reach the world with the saving knowledge of Christ.